welcome to you all. It's quite a day, and uh, I'm not at all surprised to see we've got a capacity plus crowd. But you're all most welcome, and I think uh, it's a it's a it's a wonderful place to contemplate what may or may not be happening later on tonight with someone who I think we all know is one of the smartest, shrewdest, and most insightful um, political figures on the American stage. I was telling Mark that um, I always look for his columns on the Daily Beast. It's, it's, a, it's the first place I go when I'm, when I'm looking for some insight about the election that is not sort of um, the, 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 well, ordinary. <laughs> and it, uh, it uh, is always worthwhile to hear what he has to say. It was a great uh, coup for us, as far as I'm concerned, to get Mark on this particular day to talk about the campaign, to talk about the election. And uh, Annie, we're very glad you're here, too. Am I correct that you all have already voted, both of you? Mm -hmm. Am I correct that you voted for different people? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that notwithstanding, um, it is Although like... Maybe not exactly what you said. Uh, I don't know. Well, well maybe not. Uh, in any event, uh, Mark is a Republican, and he is also someone who thinks very independently. Uh, he uh, decided not to be in the uh, 2008 campaign because he was not willing to campaign against Barack Obama. He has not been an active, uh, engaged person in this campaign in the traditional sense, although he was very instrumental in an effort to create a third party, uh, a third party candidacy scheme that did not work this time around, and maybe there are ways to uh, tinker with it to make it work again. In any event, he's one of the very smartest people about these things that I know, and I'm very glad to have you back. He's also, need I say, a former Shorenstein fellow. Thank you, Alex. Thanks Thanks so much. Um, uh, let me just... Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I was told. To mention, uh, for those on Twitter... Our hashtag is election two zero one two election two zero one two, right? Okay. Well, how much fun to be here today, uh, and what an exciting day it is because uh, because we really don't know the outcome, and at, at the very least, uh, because of certain dynamics that have happened, this is going right down to the wire, and I have no particular crystal ball to forecast the outcome that that doesn't provide any additional insight over what you've seen or read from all the wizards out there, except to say that uh, what's – you know, I would just say that everybody who's forecasting this election is doing so based on the past, and the past is based on what I describe as pattern recognition, and pattern recognition has a very limited uh, time, which is hinged to our history, which isn't that long, and I can, I can tell you, as I remember – Every election, there's one of those conventional wisdoms we throw out the window, and including the one last time, we said we never elected an African-American president. So, but I also remember the feeling that I had in 2004 when all the pundits, all the polls, and all the exit polls particularly said that John Kerry was going to win the presidency, and I was certain we were going to lose based on all the information that was out there. And I was on the plane with President Bush when we came in from a day of campaigning, and 10 minutes out, Karl Rove got the exit polls, and the air went out of the plane, and uh, it, it looked like not only we were going to lose, but we were going to get crushed. 
So uh, my, my caveat to everybody today is be wary of whatever you hear today, because everybody's going to go, oh, exit polls this, exit polls that, early vote here. You know, just discount it all until the actual votes come in. Uh, because, you know, if conventionalism holds up and looks like President Obama has a, has a, a clear path to uh, electoral college victory, that may happen. On the other hand, there may be a wave going on. The, the, the enthusiasm among Republicans is, is up over Democrats. Independents are, uh, at least until this weekend, were swinging in some ways fairly dramatically to double digits for Mitt Romney. And you rarely win the presidency without winning uh, that sector of voters. So, so that, what that means is uh, tonight will be exciting and, and, uh, and unpredictable in, in some ways for sure. I do hope it's my hope as, a, as the co-founder of No Labels, which is an organization committed to civil dialogue, bipartisanship, and problem solving, I hope we have a clear outcome. I mean, I hope that it's not an electoral college victory in one hand and, and, a, and a popular vote, uh, uh, vote for the other candidate. I hope, I hope it's, in, it's, it's not going to be a mandate, uh, a clear mandate, but I hope it's a, a clear victory anyway. So what I thought would be fun today is to expound on the column that I wrote for the Daily Beast this morning, which is to reflect a little bit on the 20 moments of this campaign that, uh, that were decisive, because, because I think that any one, uh, and certainly all of these moments, there, there are elections where the big moments don't really either happen, or if they happen, they don't really matter. And I would, I would, I would point to uh, 2008 as a campaign where the moments didn't really matter because I would I would argue that John McCain could have run a perfect campaign and he would have lost by five instead of seven. I mean, the dynamics of that race, the Republican was going to lose. It didn't matter who was nominated. It didn't matter what kind of campaign they run. Same kind of thing, uh, you know, think of other elections, uh, 1984, another race like that. It just didn't matter. But this is a campaign where obviously, looking at things tonight, uh, moments mattered. And the way that the candidates ran and the, the dynamics, any, any one of these items that we'll go through right now, which I think would be fun to reflect on. And by the way, today what I'd like to do is just kind of go through these and feel free to interject or ask questions about any one of these rather than go through all of them and ask questions at the end. I think it'd be fun to just hop in wherever okay. you want to. So first of all, uh, let's talk about who ran. There was the mitt and the not mitts. And there's the old saying that 90% of the game is showing up. In politics, and that's so true. You know, I think about elections like Bill Clinton's in 1992, where George H.W. Bush, after the Gulf War, had a 90% approval rating, about two years out. And so all the all the big Democratic war horses like Lloyd Benson and Richard Gephardt and all the people who were going to run, all hedged their bet because the president looked so popular. And the young Turks like Bill Clinton said, "I'm going." And, and then the, the dynamics shifted pretty dramatically over the course of the next year, and we saw what happened. So, uh, so first of all, there were the people who did run, uh, and you look at the field, and it's, it's interesting to go back and remember who ran. Tim Pawlenty, Michelle Bachman, Ron Paul, Gary Johnson, Rick Santorum, Herman Cain, Newt Gingrich, John Huntsman, Rick Perry, Fred Carter, and Thad McCotter, who was a congressman. Uh, there was also Buddy Romer and Jimmy the Rant's too damn high McMillan. <laughs> so, you know, that's the field, and you think about, uh, you know, the people who didn't run, uh, people like Jeb Bush. I think Jeb Bush made a determination that, although I think he clearly would like to be 
like to run for president, that I think he made a determination that given the dynastic uh, 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 anchor of, of the recent presidency of his brother, that he thought it was too early to run. Although I would say now on reflection that, 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 that he may, he may uh, could have rethought that and, and, and I think could have run uh, without that being as much, as much uh, liability as he might have thought two years ago. Um, but you think about the Mitch Daniels, the Chris Christie's, others who didn't run, and, you know, given how the election played out, interesting dynamics. But, but you've you got to show up and you've got to run the race. And Mitt Romney, to his great credit, ran a, a really terrific primary race when you look at all the challenges that he faced. And, you know, at, at one time or another, what was remarkable is that almost all of those primary opponents at one time or another were running first, including, by the way, somebody I left out, which was Donald Trump. I remember for a week or so, he was leading the Republican pack. Uh, and, you know, so Romney had to strategically and clinically take out each one of those people and built a campaign to last, and it did, and he emerged out of the primary. Then there's the what if she ran, number two. Uh, Sarah Palin didn't run, and uh, who knows what would have happened had she run. Uh, but she obviously made some calculations about uh, about what might have happened and uh, tried to preserve whatever equity she has in the party or whatever she wants to do commercially. Uh, but also Hillary Clinton didn't run. And uh, now it's people say, well, why would she have run? Well, you know, you look back over history, and President Obama was in you know in a in a in a pretty weak position a couple of years ago given all the challenges that he's faced, and uh, similar presidents in history have been challenged, have gotten primary challenges. George H.W. Bush from Buchanan, Jimmy Carter from uh, initially Ted Kennedy. So uh, the fact that, uh, that she didn't run uh, had, a, had a significant outcome. And just a couple of the others that I'll mention who didn't run, Haley Barber, uh, Marco Rubio, Rudy Giuliano, John Thune, George Pataki, Mike Bloomberg, Mike Pence, General Petraeus, uh, and then here is Trump, by the way. So uh, all those things uh, ha were large factors in the dynamic of the race. Uh, and again, it's important who stepped up. The budget battles, number three, is turning points. We think about the debt ceiling debate and what that did. And, and it, you go back and look at the numbers and what ha in terms of the, of the political environment. The, uh, it, was, it was dramatic what happened after that debt ceiling debate in terms of a, uh, what happened to American confidence in government. It dropped like 30 points as a result of that debate over the, uh, over the debt ceiling. And so uh, suddenly you had an erosion in the trust in government, trust in Obama, trust in both the parties. And so that creates a, a, you know, a particular dynamic that attracted the candidacies of people like Rick Perry. Uh, so, speaking of Rick Perry, uh, there we have the infamous oops moment, which uh, if you haven't watched that since the debate, I, I encourage you to just go watch that because it is, it's, it, it is 53 or 57 seconds of excruciating, 53 seconds of excruciating video. You know, it's, uh, uh, you know, to watch somebody that publicly melt down, uh, was just agonizing and uh, and brutal, uh, and shows 
A, just how important those debates are, the debates are generally, uh, but also how important preparation is. And because in politics, particularly today, when people have so much, uh, uh, they are so skeptical about what they see and what they read and hear in politics, they don't believe much of anything that, that, that they see in the advertising of the conventions. They think it's all prepackaged, highly cynical. So the debates provide a moment when people can see the candidates unfiltered. And so I'd say their importance is greater than ever because the cynicism level is so high. So that the one thing I'd say about Rick Perry and my friends at the Romney campaign uh, have, have, have suggested this, I think, even publicly, or certainly privately, that which we'll be discussing the campaign managers uh, uh, and all the analysis post-campaign, but the person they feared most was Rick Perry. I mean, Rick Perry on paper was a terrific candidate for the presidency. You looked at the Texas jobs record, they, they had like more jobs just in Texas created than the entire country over the course of the last 10 years. Uh, uh, so there was a very compelling story. Rick Perry is an attractive guy, uh, had run a bunch of uh, very good campaigns in Texas, uh, had, had, had written a book about sort of anti-Washington approach to government. And given the dynamics of the, of the, uh, of the political environment, he looked like he was going to be a, a terrific candidate. But you got to run and you got to step up. And, and this was a really good example of how hard this is to do. Uh, running for president is brutal. And, you know, and that's why a lot of people who run uh, and who are successful generally do it a time or two. They, they're, like Romney's a good example. He's been around the track and he's learned. You look at his performance in the debates this time compared to 2008, much, much improved. I mean, he, he, he is, his skill set as a, as a candidate improved exponentially this time versus last time. But here, here's, here's what the big mistake that Rick Perry made. His mistake was not running, was not getting in late, but what he should have done and could have done, in my opinion, was he should have announced that he was running, and then he should have said, I'm getting in late because I don't think anybody's fulfilling the kind of message that I think the Republican primary needs to hear and America needs for leadership. But I'm going to go around the country for three or four months. I'm going to go I'm going to go to Iowa. I'm going to go to New Hampshire. I'm going to have some town halls. I'm going to listen to voters. I'm going to do some town halls. I want to hear what they have to say first. And I'll debate you all in December. There was no, I mean, he would have gotten some heat about the fact that he wasn't in those first debates. But what he did was he tried to stand up a national campaign, which is almost impossible under the best of circumstances, overnight, and then three weeks later walk into a national debate. He was completely unprepared for that. So if he'd faded the heat and just said, I'm going to, I'll come, I'll see you later. I'm going to go campaign for a while, talk to the American people. Then I think that it might have been a very different outcome and Rick Perry could have been the nominee. Uh, the super PACs, I, I have this down as, as uh, I'm talking about the double speak and, and Obama's position on that, but, but really more broadly, I should say, and this has to do with his original position, which I was disappointed in when he, when he, pledged to abide by public funding in the first campaign, and then when he saw how much money he could raise, he changed his mind, uh, and then also sort of endorsed the super PAC under the notion, which is typical and not expected for politicians, where they say they don't want to unilaterally disarm. Um, but, but let's just, let me talk for a moment about the overall impact of the super PACs. This is a, this is a campaign in which uh, the spending will be north of $4 billion, uh, the super PACs will spend more than $2 billion. 
So they'll spend more money than the campaigns themselves, and uh, we could talk a long time about it, but I, 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 I'm a, I think that the Citizens United Supreme Court ruling that allowed this to happen uh, has, has, has created enormous chaos and, and great potential corruption of the system in ways we don't yet know, uh, but uh, I think is really bad for democracy. But just to highlight how, how, how crazy this is, first of all, you have laws that say that as an individual you can't raise or donate more than $2,500 to a candidate. But under the current law, because of that decision, you can walk across the street, open a super PAC, and give $10 million to a candidate. It makes no logical sense. Uh, but just to give you another idea about how distorted it is, in this campaign, there are two brothers on the Republican side, and I, I don't mean to just pick on the Republicans because it's, it's the same thing's going on, on the Democratic side, but there are two brothers who are estimated will donate more money in this campaign than the entire John McCain presidential campaign four years ago. Just two people than the entire campaign. Who are they? The Koch brothers, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I think it's a, a blight on our system, and uh, uh, unfortunately, to, to get dramatic action, it's going to require a Supreme Court action, although there's lots of statutory things that are being contemplated that will help fix around the edges. Mark? Yeah. Uh, yeah, what about the income tax consequences? Because these PACs have clearly not been engaged in uh, legitimate nonprofit activities. There was the thought that the IRS would say, hey, uh, this has got to be reported, and uh, all the rest of it, and then that sort of faded away. Well, it's, it, no question about that, and it's, uh, I, we haven't begun to unravel what's gone on here, and John McCain has, has said that it's, it, is, it, is a, uh, it's, it is a scandal only waiting to be revealed, and as, as often happens in these elections, what happens is the way the FEC and the election laws work, it's never figured out until a couple of years later, and so everybody just breaks the law knowing that they're just going to get a ticket later after the results are already in. Uh, so, you know, when you think about 2 to $3 billion being spent, much of it anonymous, most of it undisclosed, uh, there's no question there's going to be some, uh, some, some really unfortunate things we're going to learn. Uh, Osama, uh, the death of Osama bin Laden, legitimate achievement uh, for, uh, the, for the president. And not only a great achievement, uh, but... And, uh, you know, good for the country, good for our psyche, uh, but great for the Democrats. The Democrats have, have traditionally been viewed as not as strong as the Republicans on foreign policy, not as forward-leaning, not as tough, not as aggressive. And that really, you know, kind of took that, at least took that issue off the table, at the very least, and perhaps could say was, uh, uh, you know, an advantage for the president, uh, <coughs> given, given how important that was for Americans. Uh, so that that was a, an important issue for the president. I, I think the his evolution on the issue of gay marriage, I, I personally think, was the right thing to do. Uh, it could be argued about the, the timing of it and the politics of it. I don't care. I think it was the right thing to do, and I think ultimately, I think we'll look back 20 years from now. Again, my opinion, I think we'll think it was ridiculous that it was that, that we ever that it was ever an issue. Uh, um, so I think. Uh, uh, I, I think that that was a, a, a an important moment. Also, uh, on, on his decision on the Dream Act, uh, which was I think and again I think in my view the right decision, also helped him with. Uh, but it was good politically. Uh, the 
Hispanics are a an, an important and growing demographic constituency, and and uh, working on the Bush campaigns in 2000 and 2004, we uh, we were very focused on that. First of all, it's an issue that attracted me to then Governor Bush because of his very strong uh, uh, pro-immigration stance and and uh, uh, and his relation with. Uh, and messages and policies relative to immigrants in the Hispanic community. But just to give you a sense of how important that demographic is, in, 19, in 2000, when we ran, we determined that in order to win the presidency, we had to win 40% uh, of the Hispanic vote in 2000. We, won, we got 41. But three months later, our pollster walked in and said, you know what, if we get exactly that same number in 2004, we'll lose because of the rising tide of that demographic. So we realized in, in 2004 we had to get 43 percent, and we got 44. Um, now, given the nature of the Republican primaries and where the Republican Party is on this issue, I think it's been very damaging. And I think McCain got 37 percent, and I'm not sure what Mitt Romney's current numbers are, but it's, it's been around 30 percent, which, you know, is going to be, it's going to be difficult to win with that number. Now, again, I, I think given the momentum that, that Romney's had, it's, it, he could win tonight, but it will be, if he does, it will be because the Republicans were able to increase their share of a shrinking demographic, which is largely white men. And, and, and you know, and it's the same problem for Obama on the other side. He, he will only have gotten 37 percent or something like that. Uh, so um, I think that that was, again, that was an, that was an issue policy development on the on the Democratic side, which ultimately helped create a campaign which which the Demo which Obama and his team ultimately uh, checked off to, which was a very specific constituency campaign. They went after a thousand constituencies rather than a big sort of framework, a big message framework of, with a future agenda. It was more about going after a thousand different constituencies. Tax cheats, felons, murderers. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, there was uh, e plenty of blame to go on on both sides, and uh, and the whole environment descended to a level which is very difficult to watch when when you see uh, members of the of both sides basically saying that they're not going to be hostage to the fact checkers anymore. And uh, I, I describe this as a situation in which. The campaigns are driving 100 miles an hour in a 60 mile an hour speed zone, and all the cops have flat tires. Uh, I mean, it's just uh, you know, it's, there's just been such an erosion about uh, about what is acceptable and what is truthful uh, that again, I think it just it just adds to uh, cynicism on the part of voters, making it more important for the campaigns to find some authentic way to communicate, ultimately, or, or you have to go to alternative strategies uh, to try and pick off constituencies to, to uh, but, but, but facts and truth have, have certainly been, a, have been a, a, a victim in this campaign, and part of that goes to the super PACs as well, because you have, in this case, arms, uh, political operatives working on your behalf, but legally you can't coordinate with them. So when the Obama campaign came out with a, with a campaign that was demonstrably false, suggesting that Mitt Romney 
because Mitt Rom because Mitt Romney had uh, a, a company that he had uh, had been part of Bank Capital. Somebody had been laid off, but it was after Romney had left and uh, lost a job, and his wife later got sick and uh, died, and uh, or he died, and she, I, I guess she did. Anyway, the point was that there was there was there were about ten things assertions in that ad, nine of which were demonstrably false. Uh, everybody knew it. Uh, it was indefensible, and yet the president w was not compelled to come out and say that's wrong. With this with this false cloak of saying, well, that's a that's a that's the super PACs, and I don't have any responsibility for that. Um, the the Ryan pick, I think, was uh, it's interesting in the. Uh, you know what we what we've heard and what I know about it is that that this was a choice very much made by Mitt Romney himself. Uh, that I, I think that there were other recommendations made, and that Romney made uh, a, a very sort of gut decision based on the chemistry that he felt with with Paul Ryan. And I and I liked it. I thought it was a bold choice. I thought it was I thought it was a a risky choice because I thought that the Democrats would try and I make him an ideologue, which they did with some success, I think. Uh, but I think that, uh, I think, I think his, uh, I think he, uh, I think he did well as a candidate. I think he did well at the debate, which I'll, I'll t talk about in just a second here. Uh, but I, you know, but I do think it was a risky choice. But I give, I give Romney credit for making that risky choice because he thought it was the right decision. I think that, that, uh, Paul Ryan is a big thinker with big ideas, a lot of them controversial, but I think it's a time in our country where we need to be talking about big ideas, and you don't talk about bold ideas without them being controversial. So I think it was a good pick. Uh, war on women, and uh, you know, the Todd Aiken remark, the senator, Senate candidate from Missouri, uh, and his remarks about rape uh, created a, you know, a very bad uh, perception uh, about Republicans and their their views on women and and issues important to women, uh, and and I think and it wasn't just him. First of all, there was a problem with Todd Ake, and then more recently there was a problem with Murdoch in Pennsylvania, and there was somebody else in Pennsylvania in another race. So it, it created an opportunity for uh, for Democrats to declare that Republicans were waging a war on women. Uh, so unfortunate. Developments and self-inflicted wounds uh, by, you know, by by some candidates who, uh, you know, I would argue weren't necessarily the best general election candidates. But this goes to the whole issue of where the primaries have gone and what kind of candidates the parties are electing in primaries because of the hyperpartisan nature of our environment and the kind of uh, candidates they're being elected. Um, Well, uh, hard to tell. It, actually, about a week ago, uh, Romney had had really uh, uh, narrowed the gap, and in, in some cases, uh, it was it was looked about even. Uh, and 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 normally, Republicans win with about a ten point gender gap with women, and Republicans win with about a ten point gender gap with men. But as of a, a you know, and it got it got double digits a month or so ago when all this was happening, and I think the Romney 
because of the campaign, because of the debate, and a lot of other reasons, narrowed that gap. The question is, what's happened to it over the last four or five days? And, and that's not clear. I think it may have opened up a little bit again, and not sure about the dynamics at play there. Uh, the empty chair, the dirty hairy moment. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, again, there's some conventional wisdom. I, I thought that the Republican convention actually was very good. Uh, you know, I think the Eastwood moment was a, was a gamble. Uh, but, you know, I can certainly, it's one I would have made. I mean, you know, Clint Eastwood's delivered every time. And if I had a chance to put him on stage, I'd have done it in a heartbeat. You know, and, you, and he's a great American icon. And you throw him the ball, you know. And, uh, and, and uh, obviously it's controversial what happened. And it dominated the, the uh it dominated the news cycles for sure, but but there's some evidence too that that had really appealed to, to independents and uh, that, that people liked it. So it was a, a, a you know a, a bit of a gamble, and there was some controversy about how that played out. But uh, uh, but 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 I would say that that following that, the, the Democrats had a very good convention, and uh, you know it was well orchestrated, well messaged, and then the big dog came in, and Bill Clinton reminded everybody you know, why we've been so fascinated by him, by Hillary, by the, by the Clinton, uh, by the Clinton history. Uh, it was, it was really a, a, a big moment, I think, in this campaign for, for everybody, uh, where he just kind of reset the dial and kind of made clear to the American public, you know, what being a, you know, somebody with a strong opinion and an ability to articulate it well uh, and a guy who just loves the spotlight and loves politics, and it was just great to see him in his element again. And you know, the, the guy has nine lives, and he's uh, and uh, uh, so, and 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 I think had a you know, and there was some worry that he was kind of overshadowing Obama, but I I think in retrospect, uh, he 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 lifted all the boats for Democrats, and uh, by 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 having a clear, bold, assertive message and. And articulating it well for the Democrats, and also, by the way, you know, it's still. But there's a there's a great irony, and it's like, I mean, it's just a great political narrative about the whole Obama, Clinton history, and if you remember back in 2008 and how troubled that relationship was between Obama and the Clintons, and 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 uh, some pretty rough stuff out there with Clinton and South Carolina, and and so you think about the irony that it could be the Clintons that save Obama both through Clinton's speech and also for Hillary Clinton stepping out on Benghazi and taking the bullet, which the Secretary of State is supposed to do, but she, she did it, and I, and I think that issue is not resolved and it's still complicated and still problematic. Uh, but I think the Clintons, you know, stepped up and stepped up to the plate and uh, were, were, were strong warriors on behalf of, 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 of Obama. But aside from uh, the Secretary of State and the point you just made, how how big was the Benghazi thing at, at all? Any way you look at it, in terms of the, uh, the influencing the course of the campaign? Uh, good question. I, I think n net negligible. Uh, at first, I thought it was a net loser for for Romney because I thought that he, he I thought he jumped in too soon, uh, and it looked very political. Because as you recall, he had a press conference that night at like ten o'clock at night, right after the news, like a right after the press release that went out. And, and that seemed like a time when people, you know, really did want politics to stop at the water's edge and you know, give a period of reflection before jumping in. So uh, it was a very quick trigger finger on the part of Rump. And I think there was initially a little bit of collateral damage, but then it, 
you know, then he seemed to be right. Uh, and so, but I think, I think that, I think the net takeaway is that it, that it was, the, the something went wrong. Uh, but I don't think that anybody, I don't think anybody really blames the, the president, ultimately, that I think they, th- they think that this could have happened on anybody's watch, whoever was there. You know, it's, it, we live in a very dangerous world, and these kind of things are impossible to, you know, are certainly difficult to, to defend when you don't know where they're coming from and when it's an asymmetric enemy like we've got. So, but, my, my, but my view is that ultimately I don't think anybody's making a decision in this election based on Benghazi. Uh, the 47 percent uh, remark was obviously, I think, a big moment. That, I mean, that, 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 to me, that was sort of like John Kerry's remark in 2004 about voting against the appropriation before I voted for it, voted for it before I voted against it. What it did was it, it, what came out of Mitt Romney's mouth was what President Obama had been trying to say about Mitt Romney, which was that. He, he was an elitist, out of touch, didn't care about much of the country, didn't understand the middle class, and in fact kind of saw them as, you know, uh, uh, as part of the problem. Uh, and uh, so that that was uh, uh, a, a big moment, big problematic moment from a messaging point of view for, for the Romney campaign. Mark, why hasn't the Obama administration been running that ad every day since it came out? I mean, it just sort of vanished in the last few weeks. It seems to be so damaging to Romney. Why isn't there uh, Well, I can, I can only uh, speculate. One is that, um, uh, that they think it's in the water table already and people just know about it because it got so much news coverage. The other thing is that maybe at this point they, the, the, the messaging, is, messaging that they want is not about class warfare and they thought that maybe they're losing kind of important middle, upper middle class voters over that kind of messaging. But that leads to my next point, which was the biggest moment of the campaign, which was the first debate. And uh, boy, what an example of how quickly the political dynamics can change in an, in an election. And, uh, you know, um, I remember reporters uh, calling me and, and, and writing about critically about Mitt Romney for being off the trail in early December because he was doing too much debate prep and that they were saying, oh, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't out and, you know, campaigning enough and he was taking too much time off the trail. And, but I know uh, Stuart Stevens and Rush Schrieffer well, and these are people who understood the stakes and how important debates are. And they, I worked with them in the, in the Bush campaigns and they were fanatic about the debate prep and and uh, and to their credit they understood the importance and the opportunity and uh, they had a candidate who also understood that and who who I as I said I've watched since 2008 get better and better and better and he arguably you know a lot of what happened in the Republican primary debates was that Mitt Romney won all those debates I mean in the primaries overall he won because he won those debates he was really really good and I'd say arguably one of the best debaters in political history. I mean, the guy is really, really good. And and Obama, you know, if you look back at the 2008 campaign, it's not that great. I mean, despite the sort of conventional wisdom that he's this great and gifted order, he's not a great debater. And But I also remember in 2008 the, uh, the, the condition of an incumbent president. I mean, in 2004, when I worked for then-President Bush, and we got our clocks cleaned by, president, by, uh, by Senator Kerry. In that first debate in 2004, and, and I, I just know the dynamic there. You've got a somebody who's been president for four years. Uh, n- people don't really argue with you very much when you're president, uh, 
they don't really get in your face and 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 uh, uh, and they don't get a big stage and they don't get to share the spotlight. So when you have to come out of the Oval Office, uh, when you probably haven't prepared as much as you should have because you're busy being president, you got a lot of other stuff to do, and you uh, you have to share the stage with this with this person that's been running around the country criticizing you for a couple of years, often in ways that you don't appreciate. And, and, and gets a level playing field in front of 65, 70 million people, it's just not, a, it's, it's not something you go into eagerly. And George Bush did in 2004, and neither did President Obama. And uh, in this case, President Obama paid huge consequences. And if he loses the election tonight, it will be because of that debate performance. Because if he'd gone on there into that debate, having done, you remember, he went to see the Hoover Dam instead of doing debate prep that day, the day before. He thought it was more important to see the dam, and he'll have plenty of time to see the dam after this election. But he thought it was more important to go see a dam and do a photo op than do debate prep, because debate prep's no fun. I mean, it's just not. It's just grueling, crummy work. Uh, and, you know, he just he showed up like he you know, didn't really want the job, and people got that. And there was the most decisive swing in presidential debate history. And, and, and for that to happen is really hard. you got to really really excel because generally when you ask people how a debate went half the people will say my guy won the other half say their guy won right it's just you think your guy won because debates aren't scored forensically in politics so uh that reshifted the race entirely and had had, had romney had a had, had obama had just a decent performance that night the race probably would have been put put away early yeah mark with that up so yeah, Obama didn't perform, and, and Romney used that as an occasion to, to tack to the middle, which is sort of how he governed here. Yeah. Was that intentional or unintentional? Meaning, a lot of people thought he moved to the middle too late, but was that intentional coming to the middle late in the game so he couldn't get it attacked for a long period of time? You know, it was a surprise, but he made that shift. A lot of people thought he took a lot of Obama's policies, if you remember, he was more moderate in a lot of things he said. Um, how do you view that? Because that, that's one of the things he could either get a lot of credit or a lot of criticism for was being late to the game of coming back to the middle. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it, to me, it, uh, the, the, what happened is that uh, everybody had heard <laughs> or, or read a lot about uh, uh, Romney, but most of it, they'd, uh, you know, certainly a lot of it was through paid advertising from Obama about where he was. And, and it was really just an opportunity for him, to, for a lot of people to see him in his own voice on the stage, talk about a lot of these things, and I, uh, again, there's certainly an element of modulation, but I think a lot of it was, you know, was probably going on during the months, but but people hadn't really seen because they hadn't been in his rallies or hadn't been in meetings, so you know, could it have modulated earlier? I, you know, maybe and more, but the, but the point is that what he did, he did it at the, at the right time with a significant effect. So when, when everybody's watching, he did the right thing at the right moment. So, I mean, when, he had, when the cameras were on and 65 million people were watching, he hit his mark, and he hit it really well. And so then suddenly we, you know, we had a race. Uh, we just got a few more here. So then there was the Biden debate uh, with Ryan, which, I, you know, I think didn't – that was a, a situation which both candidates achieved exactly what they needed to do, which was that uh, Biden needed to re-energize the base – show up with a lot of emotion, enthusiasm, and juice, which he did, which he's very good at. But Paul Ryan also did well. I mean, he showed up that he, that he was competent, that he was articulate, that he understood the issues. So I think both achieved what they needed to do, and it, it didn't have a measurable impact 
on the election. Did you have a question, Dan? I did. I was wondering, um, how much do you think the fact-checking coverage post-debate performance um, sways public opinion? Not, not much, unfortunately. Uh, I mean, not as much as it should, I think. Um, you know, I think you know, maybe somebody will write a paper about it here, Alex, sure. soon, uh, about what's happened to fact-checking, because, because that was an important component of the 2000, 2000 debate. Because where we had, in the first debate with Al Gore, you know, in the first few hours, there was sort of this notion that Gore had won the debate, but because of an aggressive fact-checking exercise that we pushed, uh, but, but also reporters felt compelled to cover and, and do their job, the dynamic changed over the course of 24 hours, and by the time we got through with all the fact-checking, Bush was perceived to have won the debate. Uh, so Baghdad, Benghazi, Big Bird. Uh, so we talked about Benghazi. Uh, that 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 whole issue, again, I I I don't know how much it nets out particularly, but then we kind of got into the Big Bird issue, uh, and, and and I think uh, uh, in, in some ways the, the whole Big Bird Benghazi, you know, those two sort of conflated in these last few weeks is going to be a big important issue, not so important issue. Where's the president's? Uh, where where are his priorities? Uh, independence, uh, the. Uh, uh, the, the thing that gives uh, Republicans some measure of hope or confidence going into tonight is that, at least until this weekend, and and uh, and I, you know, I somebody may uh, educate me about anything I've seen in the last couple of days, but as of a week ago, uh, Mitt Romney was winning independents by, in some cases, double digits, and I think the Gallup poll yesterday actually had him winning independents by double digits, and if that's the case. That something really crazy could happen tonight because the only instance in which I can think where a president didn't win independence and won the presidency was George Bush in 2004, and he only lost independence by one. Uh, so if if Romney is really winning independent voters by ten, or or anything along that kind of margin, five or more, then all the models may get thrown out the window tonight. Uh, so see what happens there tonight. Sandy, uh, the real October surprise. You know, everybody talks about October surprises, and uh, uh, you know, Mother Nature. You know, campaigns are all about control, and campaigns want to control everything. That's the one thing they can't control because Mother Nature ain't got no leash. And uh, and, she, and Sandy came off the leash and created havoc. And I don't, I, I don't, I, I, I don't subscribe to the theory that. I don't think that it's going to persuade a bunch. I don't think a bunch of people change their mind because suddenly they saw President Obama doing his job. I mean, I think that they expect that of a president. I think he, I think he did a great job on on. But I don't think it's the sort of thing where people said, "Aha, oh well, he can handle the storm, and therefore I'm going to vote for Obama." What I do think it did was that it blacked out any news coverage for Mitt Romney during a critical period where he, at least psychologically, there may be some argument about what real momentum he had at that point, but psychologically he thought, and the Republicans certainly thought, and a lot of the media certainly thought, that he had momentum before the storm. And then, boom, it's just a blackout. It's all news coverage 24 hours a day for three, four, five days. And that's, you know, if you don't have, if you can't get your message out in the final 10 days of a campaign, it's got to be an impact. And then finally, uh, uh you know, will we will will there be resolution tonight? That's kind of where I started off, which is I sure hope so. Uh, there are those who are arguing that 
you know, the Romney could win the popular vote, Obama could win the Electoral College. Uh, uh, I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's probable, but it's certainly possible, and and I, I think that that would be unfortunate. Uh, I think it's going to be close no matter what, and I and I and I think that given all the issues that we have to face, that uh, uh, I hope that we can come together as a country, come together politically, uh, to to do the things we know we've got to do. And just as a final footnote, I'd like to add that, as I mentioned at the beginning, I think I co-founded this group called No Labels which is designed to bring more civil discourse, bipartisanship, and problem-solving. And I'm encouraged because we did a lot of campaigning out there this cycle with the No Labels group that we started fairly recently. already has 600,000 people across the country working very hard on this. And the thing that I'm encouraged by is that, that we're going to announce what we're calling a Problem Solvers Caucus in January 14th in New York City. Uh, that will be uh, chaired by some significant leadership on both sides of the parties. Uh, that um, uh, will be uh, what we think is at least 40 members of Congress, mostly from the House, a few senators as well, who have committed to work across party lines and become a coalition group that can be instrumental in being a catalyst for, for solving these problems like the fiscal cliff, immigration. You've, some of you may be familiar with something called the Blue Dog Democrats or the Main Street Republicans, which were caucuses on both sides of the aisle that had those kind of numbers, 40, 50, 60 members at one point, but don't any longer because of the hyperpartisanship. Their ranks have been completely depleted because everybody's winning these primaries on the far left or the far right, so there's nobody sort of in the broad middle, but we're gonna, this group will be announced in, uh, in January, and, and, and I, I just say that as an encouraging note to say we, we're getting a lot of response from, from, from Congress, and, and the people are usually ahead of the politics and ahead of, uh, of what we see, so I'm encouraged that that uh, that that I see people moving toward a problem-solving consensus, and I think they're one step ahead of, of the political body. Uh, but usually, the political body catches up, and so I hope that that's going to happen in the in the very near future. Thank you. Thank you. Um, <laughs> one question, then we'll open it up. Uh, if you would give a, and I know you don't have time to do more than a quick and dirty, but if peradventure Romney wins, and if peradventure Romney loses, what happens to the Republican Party? Well, uh, if, he, if he wins, uh, you know, the, it's, it's, it's uh, parties these days are, are, are not so much about, uh, about parties. The, the, the ability of a party to govern and set direction is, is diminished by a, a lot of what's happened politically. The, the, you know, the parties don't have power anymore, really. A lot of it's because of the laws and the super PACs. The funding has gone to super PACs. The parties don't even really have much money anymore. And so the direction is is much easier to set when you have a president. And it's it's a lot easier. You don't have the sort of factional infighting that you do when you're a party out of power. So if Mitt Romney wins, he will very quickly set the agenda and the tone and the direction of the party. I think that's not entirely clear about where that will be. But I, I have a good instinct about what he would do. And I think that uh, I, I think that his, uh, I, I think that he would he would try and rally the Republican Party in a way that would be would be toward his instinct, which is is to be a guy who fixes problems. I don't think it's going to be to I don't think his goal is going to his ambition will be to you know create a Republican Party that you know it's not it won't be all about the Republican Party. Probably not even in ways that George Bush was was dedicated to the Republican Party. 
I mean, he, you know, he had a, a, a real loyalty to the party in many ways that I don't think, I don't think that's not Romney's checkoff. I think his checkoff is to be very analytical, to set up, you know, a cabinet and a business to see, you know, how are we going to attack these problems? And he knows that he's got to do it in a bipartisan way. So I think that that'll take the party in a good direction. I think there'll be some, I think it'll take some heat over it from, from the flanks of the Republican Party, but I think he'll be willing to do it uh, because I think that's what's, what needs to be done in order to achieve any kind of progress. He loses. There's going to be a, a, a battle royal over the, the over why he lost, and you're going to have conservatives saying he wasn't conservative enough, and you're going to have progressives saying that uh, that it wasn't that it was too conservative, and that uh, that his candidacy was hijacked. Uh, and and so I think you're going to have you're going to have people like you're going to have a lot of young guns. There's a lot of young. Uh, 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 people in the Republican Party with a lot of potential. Marco Rubio's one of them. Paul Ryan's another. Chris Christie got people like that. But you've also got you know some of the you got Jeb Bush out there. And I think uh, as Alex, our friend Alex Castellanos said the other day, he said they, you know with, if Romney loses, they're going to sell out every plane to Miami <laughs> for the next week as people rush to kiss the ring of Jeb Bush. Uh, but I do think that I think Jeb Bush will quickly emerge as. An important voice for where the party's headed, and and he he's he's been critical over the last year or two. Uh, surprisingly, uh, I, I thought for him to kind of say some of the things that he said in recent months about where the party's going. So I think he has a clear notion about where the party needs to go, and, and I think a willingness to express it at the very least. Uh, students with questions first. Yes. Is there any chance at all that we're going to see the sort of progressive, pragmatic Massachusetts governor type in Romney in office? In other words. Some of the crazier ideas, like preparing China a currency manipulator on day one, um, and never ever ever regulating taxes. I'm going to see that person emerge, or do you think that's impossible? Just now tied to policies. I think so. I think very. I think more. More very likely. Yeah. I, I'm because I think that that is. I think that ultimately that's his instinct, and uh, that. Um, you know, I think he's going to surround himself. With highly capable people that aren't necessarily political people. I mean, I, I, again, I think that kind of goes back to his Bain and business world experience, which is really the formative part of his DNA. And I, so I don't think it's going to be stacked with a bunch of ideologues in the cabinet or decision makers around him. And I think that they're going to they're going to assess the situation and make practical, pragmatic policy decisions. In the Defense Department, you don't think it'll be a neocon? Don't know so much about that. That's uh, you know I. I I was disappointed that, you know, a, a guy who's running as a fiscal conservative was so hawkish on defense that he didn't want to cut it at all. You know, to me that seemed in, inconsistent economic with the economic ideology of the campaign. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. On the foreign policy front, it, it does lean, lean a bit hawkish, yeah. Uh, now, two parties are easily divided. So uh, what thing... Uh, New president should do to heal politics in the U.S. between uh, two parties. I think that the uh, you know the first the first hundred days, first six months of any presidency, more now than ever, is kind of all you got. I mean that's that's I mean that's the that's the frame where you have an opportunity to really where you have some uh, capital and it's the time to use it. And and I think that. Uh, by the way, I think this is true with Obama, too, I, 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 and I think it's true with Romney, as I just said. But I think they're going to be very pragmatic, and they understand that in order to get some of the big things done, they've got to 
they've, they've got to uh, govern with a bipartisan approach, and and I think that that Romney would be great to pick a you know Democrat or two and put him in his cabinet. Same thing with uh, Obama to pick a Republican or two, put them in their cabinet. Have leadership meetings, bring the leadership together, and actually meet with them together, which they you know, just haven't done in, in a very long time. But I think that signal right off the top is going to be critical. And I think if they do it in the right way and they do it authentically, that uh, that they'll get a response from the body politic. Yes, there was a lot of media coverage after the third debate speculating that Romney had moved closer to um, Democratic Party principles and ideas around foreign policy. If Romney's president, what kind of foreign policy agenda can we see? Could you comment on Iran? Well, you made a good point, which kind of goes back to the issue we were discussing, which is on foreign policy. I, I, I think I was glad to see what Romney did in that third debate. And, and you know, I'm, and, and to me it's much more credible to say in politics uh, to, to on occasion acknowledge that your opponent has done some good things. And I think it's difficult on foreign policy on a lot of these things to distinguish yourself differently when uh, on, on some of the key issues the administration is doing a fairly decent job. And, I, you know, I think the rhetoric got fired up during some of the campaign, but I think by the third debate, I think we saw a pretty practical Mitt Romney there and where we might really see him go on foreign policy, which is, you know, maybe lean a little bit further forward, but nothing radical. I think that's what he did in the third debate was that he kind of, he sent a signal to people watching that he's not just a, a crazy neocon, that he was, you know, that he was, that he was safe. And I think that was the point, and I think that's part of the, strategy of that third debate. And you think that's the truth? I do, yeah. Yes? Hi, uh, thank you. I have, uh, two questions. One is um, as far as how much you think the super PACs giving to sort of shadow candidates, the extreme candidates to offset the more electable in the primary is a factor or a growing factor. And then the other question was what happens between Marco Rubio as a protege of Jeb Bush that's a really good question. Um, they, well, the, the, the super PAC funding has been instrumental in electing, you know, uh, these, these people from the, from the primaries who then are in, unelectable in, in the general. So, again, I think that particularly if Romney loses, there's going to, you know, the, the, the Republicans will be in the desert for another four years, and and those conditions force, you know, mean you adapt and, uh, like a lizard and, <laughs> and, and and get some survival skills going and realize that you've got to change the habits to get a different outcome. Uh, the Rubio-Bush, uh, uh, that's a, a great question because they are both, uh, kind of rock stars in the party, uh, but I, but uh, there's no question that Rubio will de- defer to, to Jeb Bush. I think because he's very much a protege of, of Jeb's, as you mentioned, and I don't think that he would do anything without his blessing. By the way, let me just say on that note that I think that he is a spectacular public official and candidate, Marco Rubio, and I say that as somebody was initially very skeptical about him. When he first ran, I, th- I kind of wrote him off as kind of a Tea Party guy. Uh, but then I was impressed because when he ran for the Senate in Florida, he did some very unorthodox things that were, were very independent. Uh, for example, he, he uh, 
volunteer during that campaign. And remember, this is Florida, where the, you know what the population is like there. And he said that he would support entitlement reforms, including increasing the age limits for beneficiaries and means testing. I mean, that's just, you know, anybody that, you know, before that said you, that would be impossible to do that in Florida and win, and he did it. And then I just, let me add that I, I had an opportunity to meet with him a few months ago just on a, you know, in his office on some matter. And I was so impressed, uh, you know, uh, and I, I just, I, I just, I've seen a lot of people in these condition, sorts of situations, and he was thoughtful, he was smart, he was independent, you know, I just, all, you know, I, 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 I put all my sort of radar on the guy, and I, I was really impressed with him. So I think, and, and, and not just on domestic issues, he's, he gets huge credit for really uh, thoughtful stuff on foreign policy, and Anyway, as young as he is and as good as he is now, I think he's he's a name that will be around American politics for a long time. Am I missing someone over here? When when you look at tonight, do you have a prediction? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think Gary Johnson's going to make it. <laughs> If I, if I had to bet, uh, you know, I'd probably lean on Obama. I mean, that's just, it's, I, I think that you can't have that many data points. Or, well, you can, and they can be wrong. It's, it's, it's unusual. But it has happened before. So, I, like I said, I, I have no special insights except for a, a real thermometer, you know, or a, a, a you know, a bell in my own head that tells me to be careful about predictions because I, you know, I've been in campaigns where we thought for sure we we're going to win and we got jammed, and then you know, 2004 we were so certain we were going to lose and we won. So, but that's, this has that feeling of 2004. So, Is I caution anybody. She's no. behind you, I think. No, no? No. How about the Senate? Looks like it's turned around. Well, I, I think the Democrats are going to. I think it'll be like a 51-point margin. But as you know, because of the filibuster, doesn't really matter, and and the Republicans will hold the House. So, you know, if, if Obama's reelected, it's going to be exactly what we've had. Yeah. Final question. Uh, assuming that it appears to be a tie, what's the likelihood that the Supreme Court would intervene again and annoy the president of the House? God, let's hope that doesn't have to happen. And I think Obama's got the votes this time, doesn't he? <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, um, well, they've got, they've got precedent on their side, and so I, 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 they probably, you know, if the factors are the same, they'll use precedent to step in. But Like you, I hope we'll be spared that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry we're out of time. Mark McKinley, thank you so much. Thank you, Alex.